Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, he's a politician you'd never suspect of having an office sex scandal, but will this be the legacy for outgoing Toronto Mayor John Tory? Economic theory tells us that unemployment and inflation are inextricably linked, but do we really need to increase unemployment to bring down inflation? And it's less than they asked for, but Canada's premiers have agreed to accept the health care funding deal offered by the Trudeau government. Next steps? Well, we'll get into that too. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. An interesting day uh, here in, in Ontario, especially where probably Canada's most famous mayor will be laid to rest on her 102nd birthday, as it turns out. And the mayor of Canada's largest city is, well, probably wondering about his future and just what's going to be happening right now. And even with Friday's jaw-dropping announcement from uh, Toronto Mayor John Tour that he's uh, going to stay for a few more days, as one public relations expert puts it, there appears to be a crisis response framework that's at play here. Global's Matt Carty's looked into it, and here's his report. Emery Aikens is a media and issues specialist in Toronto. She says this scandal coming out of the mayor's office is going to play out for quite a while. This is one that's going to go on and on for quite some time until order is restored. And that means, um, you know, we have a new mayor and all those processes are put in place. But Aikens says Tory and his team are handling the crisis as it's been taught in typical PR classes. She says since Friday, there has been transparency and accountability. There is also stability with the mayor now staying on until at least Wednesday to pass the city budget. This may be part of their strategy to ensure we have a smooth transition of city government. When Tory resigns, Deputy Mayor Jennifer McElvey would serve as acting mayor but would not have strong mayor powers. Matt Carty, Global News. So let's talk about the ramifications of that. And uh, it's it's a, a bizarre story. We've heard so many different angles from it in the last little while, starting, of course, with uh, Mayor Tory's uh, announcement uh, that, uh, that happened uh, last Friday. Uh, one of the uh, gentlemen that's looked into this and talked about it extensively on his program, The Agenda, on TVO, of course, is our good friend Steve Pakin, the host of The Agenda, uh, who actually wrote a letter to, to Mayor Tory that uh, is put up on the TVO webpage uh, a couple of days ago. And, uh, Steve, we welcome you back to the program on a very tumultuous time. It's great to have you with us today. Uh, tumultuous is exactly the right word. I, we, we, I guess we had thought... Talk, we talk to us a little bit about... about what, yeah, I, You had a great panel on, by the way, last night talking about this, and we'll talk about those individuals and some of their responses in, in just a couple of seconds here. Uh, but... Your thoughts about this, because as you mentioned in, in the letter to Mayor Tory, you've known this guy for quite some time right now. How did you react when you heard the news? You know, when, when a knee blast goes out of the mayor's office at 7.30 on a Friday night, saying that the mayor is going to hold a news conference at 8.30 p.m. on a Friday, uh, you know that can't be good. And I was um, thinking to myself, what possibly could the mayor announce so late on a Friday night I mean, it's obviously an urgent situation. And the first thing that went through my mind is he's probably got some health problems and he's going to announce that he's going to step aside in order to reclaim his health and then hopefully come back to work. And, I mean, I've known him for 40 years. I remember when he was Bill Davis's principal secretary back in the days of the Ontario PC government in the early 1980s. And when he got to the microphone and when he announced what he announced, Bill, you could have knocked me over with a feather. And I think so many people feel the same way about it. Just shocked. Well, the first thing that came to my mind when I heard this was going was Patrick Brown. Uh, totally different circumstances. Maybe not so totally now. They think when he had to step down because of the allegations against him, and that was the that was even later. It was like eleven thirty at night, wasn't it? That he actually made that announcement. But as you say, as soon as you hear it's going to happen, you know there's 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 nothing good coming out of this. 
Well, and the irony, of course, is that Mayor Tory got elected for the first time back in 2014, uh, which seems a very long time ago now, uh, explicitly to turn the page on the chaotic years of Rob Ford, who was the mayor before him, and ironically, with whom he shares a birthday. They're born on the same day. Obviously, that has not happened. I mean, there was a sort of eight years of, of relative stability in the mayor's office, but this is a completely unanticipated, shocking development, which I gather, and I didn't know it, but I gather, Bill, that, that whispers have been around the mayor's office for uh, several months now, and the Toronto Star has been looking into this story for several months now. I didn't know a thing about it, but of course, it all blew up last Friday, and now we figure out what happens next. Well, I'll go back to the panel that you had yesterday because you had one of the star reporters who's been doing the work on this uh, for quite some time. And that, I was kind of shocked when he had admitted that on your program last night that we've known about this. It's one of those, I guess, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, political things that goes on at City Hall or the, the legislature. Uh, we know about so-and-so, but who's going to say anything about it? You know, because uh, there for the grace of God go me. Uh, so there's always going to be gossip. Uh, but I, I was surprised, and I know that I'm glad you brought up and uh, you know the, the follow-up question to that. Why did you decide to pursue it then? Because this happens all the time. Well, uh, we got to put this in two different categories. I think, right? That yes, there are office romances that happen all the time, and yes, there's all sorts of you know behind-the-scenes, complicated personal lives. Humans are humans, uh, etc. That's one set of things. And and Ben Spur, who's the reporter you're referring to, said that had it simply been the case of the mayor caught in, a, in an affair with a, another woman who, let's say, worked outside City Hall or over whom he had no agency, as the expression goes, uh, he says the star would not have published the story. He said what changes the story into a matter of public interest is the fact that this is a subordinate in his office with whom he was engaged in an illicit relationship, which he himself acknowledges was inappropriate and a, and a bad lapse in judgment. And, and it therefore becomes a matter of public interest. Why? Because, uh, for example, if there are promotions to be had in the mayor's office, uh, it's pretty impossible to imagine that this person wouldn't have been favored over other people because of the nature of her relationship with the mayor. Uh, similarly, if it had gone south, maybe this person would have been fired uh, inappropriately. Maybe she was doing a good job but got fired anyway because the relationship broke up. Uh, you can imagine a whole series of permutations where... Uh, things get ultra complicated because of this relationship, bringing an unfairness into the situation. There's also a question now of taxpayers' dollars, Bill, because uh, she did go on the road with him to numerous uh, foreign trips. Uh, we were told at the time that these were business trips that the mayor was taking to promote businesses in the city of Toronto. Uh, there's now an open question as to whether or not that frankly was the case or whether or not this was just an opportunity for him to get away with his love interest. I don't know what else to call her. Um, uh, uh, you know, on the taxpayer's dime. None of this is proven, but this is all within the realm of uh, informed speculation now, given the nature of this relationship. Well, the, your uh, letter to, to John Tory that uh, we referred to at the beginning of our conversation here, you make an interesting distinction because I heard, and I'm sure you did uh, over the first couple of days, over this past weekend especially, that, well, come on, Bill Clinton got away with it, and everybody down there thought, oh, good for you. And uh, actually, his approval rating went over 70%, I think, even after the Lewinsky scandal. But as you mentioned in your piece, there was a not, pretty much an expectation that, oh, yeah, there goes Clinton again. Not, not so with John Tory. No, and let's remember two things. Number one, uh, everybody knew Bill Clinton was a quote-unquote rascal when he got elected, right? I mean, he went through an enormous primary process to get the Democratic nomination, and you know, the Jennifer Flowers situation came out. 
there were no surprises when when it was discovered. I mean, it was shocking, but people weren't surprised to hear that Bill Clinton was involved in an illicit relationship behind his wife's back. Uh, this is different. And, and let's also say that's 30 years ago. You know, the yeah. yardsticks have moved. Um, you know, nobody seems to think it's appropriate for a powerful male boss to be having a relationship with a woman less than half his age over whom he has authority in his office. Those yardsticks have moved in the 30 years since Bill Clinton. And the other thing is, again, Clinton, nobody was surprised. Tory, everybody is shocked. This seems so out of character for him. Well, and, and I I don't know about the marital situation. I mean, we're, we're told, and you guys talked about it on the panel last night, that apparently there were some problems and have been for some time. And that's, that's a regrettable for, for the both of them and for the whole family. As you mentioned, he's got grandkids involved in this too. Uh, but it's, it's the ethics, I guess, that, uh, that I, I think have shocked an awful lot of people here, Steve. As you mentioned, you've known this man for many, many years from the beginnings of his political career. And and he knows, and I know he knows. I've talked to him many times uh, in the various capacities he's had over the years. Uh, rule one in politics is avoid conflicts of interest. And and if there's any doubt, avoid even the idea that there could be a conflict of interest. If there's even a perception, run fast the other direction. He knows that. He has to know that. Of course he knows it, Bill. But let's, you know what, let me introduce a note of empathy into all of this, and that is, you know, for whatever reasons, and this is the arrangement they have always had, um, Mayor Tory and his wife spend considerable amounts of time apart. Uh, we know that she has not been thrilled about the fact that he decided to run for a third term. She gave him her blessing in doing so. But we know that the original arrangement between the two of them was that he was going to do two terms and out. And then he decided that he wanted to run for a third term, and she gave him the green light. She spends a lot of the time in Florida. Uh, that they have a place down there, and she spends a considerable amount of time down there, and they are apart. I don't think that you know we have to be too imaginative to understand that during uh, the height of COVID-19, where the mayor and his staff are putting in 16, 17, 18, 19-hour days, literally, day after day after day, seven days a week, and there becomes a kind of a you know, you're in the foxhole together, right? You and mm -hmm. your staff are in the foxhole together. You are going full tilt all the time, uh, trying to deal with a global pandemic, uh, daily briefings, trying to understand what's going on. It's completely understandable that, that uh, you know, the mayor being on his own and this uh, junior employee being a single person, uh, that at some point, uh, spending all this time together, um, a spark happened. And, uh, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. This is not the first time, and it won't be the last time, this kind of thing has happened in the workplace. But because of the public interest and because of the other issues that we've talked about already here, it's it's not your average situation. It is problematic, and, and now they have to deal with the fallout. Let's talk a little bit about that fallout, because it's been mixed. I mean, there are some people that just say, well, it's about time. They, they just don't like John Tory. And some pretty vile things on social media that you referred to on, on the program last night, from political enemies, I guess, to a certain extent, but just some people that just don't seem to like him. But then on the other side of that, Steve, you read the quote from Rosie DeMano's article on the Star from the, the, yesterday, I guess, as well. Uh, they basically said, what are you sticking your nose into somebody's private business for? And, and I got to tell you, we talked about this on our show yesterday, and that seemed to be the feeling from an awful lot of people. Like, back off, leave the guy alone. Bill, I can tell you, and I don't know how reflective this is of the general public opinion, but I can tell you that people who have tweeted at me and people who have emailed me about this, and they are in equal numbers, male and female, have said 
they think he made a mistake to resign and they think he should stay on the job. They think he should rescind his intention to resign and stay on the job. And in, and in the view uh, and the words of so many, finish the job we elected you to do just a few months ago. Now, uh, that that obviously doesn't take into account or probably doesn't take enough into account uh, the concerns, the conflicts of interest, the difficulties, the ethical problems that we've already talked about here. However, you know, we're in a situation where the city of Toronto is in a mess. And they are asking themselves, is it really a good time to put on the sidelines a guy who has a heck of a lot of experience on the job in exchange for or in favor of somebody else who's going to take the job uh, a few months down the road who will have much less experience? And what do we do about the leadership vacuum that takes place in the interim? And these are questions that uh, have been put forward. In addition, and, and you know, uh, there was an NDP member of parliament who I'm not going to name because I just thought this is really unfortunate what you did, who's, who tweeted something to the effect of, you know, when, when COVID was at its worst, you were, um, what was the word he used on, like, preying on your staff, or uh, it was a word like that. The suggestion... Predi- yeah, that- the essence was it was a predatorial effort. Exactly. And, and I just thought, you know, you have no idea how this relationship started. For all we know, she initiated it. Uh, you know, for you to be suggesting that this is yet another example when you know nothing of an older man preying on, you know, his younger staff is just really wrong. And not only that, you know, it's been pointed out to me, this woman was not 18, Bill. She was 31. She's an adult. At the end of the day, yes, there are complicating factors and there are problems as we've discussed. But at the end of the day, you've got two adult people who decided to get into what has been described as a consensual relationship. Yes, all of the problems notwithstanding. And therefore, there are many people who say, you are infantilizing this woman by suggesting she's just a poor damsel in distress who was taken advantage of and 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 taking away from her whatever strength or authority she may have brought to all of this. So I, we, I think we just got to be really careful about the assumptions we make here. We don't know what happened. We don't know how it started. We don't know the nature of the so-called power imbalance between the two of them. Maybe it was only a professional power imbalance, but in their personal relationship, it might have been uh, very equal. We don't know. And people should stop making assumptions about that. I got a minute left, but I got to ask you very quickly because based on your show yesterday and a lot of the feedback we've had, would he come back? I, and and I'm not suggesting this was all a plan. He's he's announced that he's going to sit there and let the dust settle, and then announce he's going to come back. Uh, I think he sincerely meant that he was going to step down when he made that announcement. But there's been such feedback on this right now to say, look, just have a cooling off period, maybe get back to work, uh, because as you said, the, the scene around Toronto City Hall these days is not a pretty one. I know on Twitter, I have seen numerous people tweet already that uh, a public opinion research firm is in the field polling that very question. Uh, you know, do you believe the mayor should rescind his resignation and stick uh, stick to it and go through the budget process? And, and who knows, maybe even if there is a by-election, if he does resign, run in the by-election and see whether or not, you know, let the people decide. You can bet, Bill, that those all of those issues are under consideration right now. Well, and I reminded our listeners yesterday, I know we're running away every time. Sheila Copps did that years ago. You remember her promise that, she did. you know, I'll, I'll resign we'll if we don't Mr. get Dave rid of it. And, and she did run and she won. She did indeed. And, and she's not the only one. There was a former minister of mines in Ontario who actually resigned because he traded in mining shares. And he ran in the by-election and won again as well. Rene Fontaine was his name yeah. back in the late 1980s. So, you know, this we have seen this rodeo before. Well, it's politics, and you just don't know what's on the next page. Steve, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Great to talk to you. You be well.
You too. Steve Pakin, host of The Agenda on TVO. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. So many people joining the labor force last month. The jobless rate held steady at 5%, hovering just above the record low of 4.9%. Job gains were made across sectors with wholesale and retail trade seeing the largest employment gains. The economy has been on an upward trend with employment since September, adding a total of 326,000 jobs. That's despite forecasts that higher interest rates would slow the economy down significantly and weigh on employment. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press. All right, let's uh, peel back some of these layers here and find out just what is going on, because this seems to run contrary to some of these economic theories that we've been talking about for years now, uh, about you know the roller coaster economy, the inflation and recovery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, to shed some light on this, please to welcome back to the program, Ian Lee. Ian, of course, is an associate professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University in Ottawa. Uh, Ian, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time today. My pleasure, Bill. What about this this theory? As as so many analysts are looking at some of the data that we're getting here, Ian, and simply say, whoa, 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 we're not supposed to be getting more jobs here. We're supposed to be slowing this down. That's what's going to kill inflation. (laughs) Right. Are we we at cross purposes here? Yeah. uh, Here's my take. Um, And and believe me, I've I've been studying the data as closely as everyone else. And I read every word uh, from the Bank of Canada and their reports and the the outlook of the economy, which is the Monetary Policy Report. Um, My... My interpretation is this. The um, First off, we poured, we, the government of Canada, not me, but we, Canada, uh, both fiscally and in terms of monetary policy, we poured gargantuan, unprecedented stimulus into the Canadian economy in the last three years. And I mean unprecedented, unbelievable unprecedented. We drove interest rates down to essentially zero. Never done before, not in the Great Depression, not in World War One, not in World War Two, never before. That's an ext- people don't think of low interest rates as stimulus. This is massive stimulus when you cut the interest rates down. Secondly, they poured three quarters of a trillion dollars in COVID uh, income support on top of the four hundred billion they spend every year. The government can. So there's a just an incredible amount of money solution around in the economy. Secondly, and here's my second take or second uh, explanation, is, is that the shortage of jobs, shortage of labor, shortage of workers, not a theory, not an opinion, StatScan shows it that we're almost a million short workers. And I argue that this is uh, changing the economics of everything. It's changing the economics of everything because employers learned in the uh, in the last three years during COVID, you know, you know, for the last fifty years, you had not not enough work. Really simple, you lay people off because hey, you'll have no problem hiring them back. There's always extra workers, right? We saw that in the recessions of '72 and 1979, and all the recessions of the last fifty years. Except we're not in the last fifty years. The boomer half century is over. It's dead. It's gone as I said to the House of Commons Finance Committee. It's over. And so what I'm saying is it, what we have, it's changed everything. So employers are much more reluctant to lay workers off. They're keeping them on the payroll and paying them. And of course, they're going out and spending. So the economy is more robust and stronger than people thought it was. They were applying the lens or the standards of the past to the present and future, but we're not in that half century anymore. We're in the half century of permanent labor shortages, which is going to change economics, 
change. It's going to make recessions. I don't want to say they're going to eliminate them, but they're going to make recessions very different, far less harsh, because people are going to be just terrified to lay anybody off because they want, they, they're going to say, hey, I'm not going to be able to get them back when the recession's over. So but, between but, the gargantuan stimulus and the job shortage, this is changing what's going on. But this is, I think, what's worrying an awful lot of people. You speak truth to power. You always have. That's what I love talking with you about, things like this. Uh, but uh, to use the analogy of uh, somebody who's into archery, uh, they're not just missing the bullseye here, Ian. They're missing the target altogether. Uh, yes, when you start yes, looking at this and yes. say, are we going down the wrong way here? The um, Well, I'll get to the interest rate increase in a moment. Um, but um, I, I do believe that a lot of the um, analysts, and they're smart people. I know some of them, you know, but... Uh, Napoleon, and I like this quote very much, Napoleon famously said that generals always fight the last war instead of the next war because they're familiar with the last war. They lived through the last war. They were fighting the last war. So that's where all their experiences are. But then along comes uh, the next war with uh, different technologies, different knowledge, different experiences. But so a lot of the uh, economic analysts are saying, well, you know, I lived through recessions before. They're very clear. The unemployment goes through the roof. It always happened every other time. So sure, it's going to happen again. No, it's not because of this fund. And I said this to the House of Commons MPs on the Finance Committee, and they did not like what I was saying. I said, all of you, every party, you are living in the past, not because of out of malice or because you're bad people, but because you don't realize that we're not in that half century, I call it the boomer half century, of labor surplus. We had way too many boomers, not enough jobs. So we always had high unemployment even in good times and really high unemployment when we went into recession. And so people thought that was the natural world that we lived in. It was always going to be like that. And what I'm saying is, no, we're in this brand new world. And it's not because of pandemic. It's going to be, it's because of the collapse of the birth rate. And for the next half century, half century, and it's not just Canada, it's all the Western countries and China too. There's going to be massive labor shortages. And so my point being, it's changing everything, but we have not changed our, the glasses or the lenses that we use to look at the facts. We still unwittingly, unconsciously assume it's 1972 or 1982 or 1992 and, and think that, oh, well, obsession's coming. So that means unemployment's going to go through the roof. No, it is not. And if unemployment does not go through the roof, then that means that the demand is going to be maintained because economies go into recession, partly because workers uh, get laid off and they have less money to spend. But what if they're not getting laid off? That's going to change the situation. And so we're the interest rates, I argue, as you know, were far too low. Uh, and I'm not advocating them going to 10 or 20 or anything silly, but I, I think that the, the 1% rates we had, the quarter of one, were so ridiculously unreal. And so I think that the long-term rate of interest is going to be higher, maybe 4%, maybe 3 maybe 4 reflecting the, the, um, this different reality that we are in. So they are doing, I, I thought that the Bank Canada is doing the right thing with the interest rates, but where I do, do believe the government is going the wrong direction is the fiscal, the, the Minister of Finance, stimulating and running chronic significant deficits on consumption and not on investment um, and, you know, on infrastructure and so forth. So there, there are still things that they could be doing differently because of their, 
the, the bad glasses they got. They've got the glasses from the past and not the future <laughs> on their on their face. Okay, but to use let's let's fight last war again, okay? <laughs> to use your analogy, yes. the analogy. All right, so Tiff Macklin's going to look at these numbers and say, "Whoa, maybe I shouldn't have paused the interest rate. Maybe I'm going to have to jack rates up again." Because that's that's what yes. the old formula right. would say to do. Would you yes. advise him to, to to just stay cool, Tiff? It's going to be fine, or would it, you should he go ahead and do that anyway? Because clearly, he, that's what he's been doing, and it's not doing or not getting the intended impact that he wanted. Yes, you're you're right. Um, I, I think he was probably it was astute to pause the rates. I mean, and I mean pause, not stop, but pause, yeah. so he can see the data coming in. Well, this is some data coming in that the the jobs numbers were ten times above the norm, as you said. They didn't miss the bullseye. They they didn't even hit any coming anywhere close to the target. So uh, I think they're going to be looking at the uh, as well the core inflation. Is it peaked, plateaued? Is it coming down? Because I think that that's going to help govern or influence, I should say, his decision going forward. I I don't, Bill, because a lot of people are really curious about this. I am not suggesting I think interest rates are going to go to seven or eight. I don't believe that. Um, I I don't believe they're going to go back down to anyone who says, oh, we I'm just waiting, for, pining for the days that they come back down to a half or one percent. Those days are not coming back. Those days are gone. We're not coming back to uh, half or one. So we're going to see interest rates probably in the 3 to 4% in, in the longer term as we go forward. Always interesting to get your perspective on this. We'll see how the bank does respond to this. Ian, thank you for the time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Bill. Good talk. Take care. Ian Lee, associate professor at the Spot School of Business at Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Um, I, I would say, though, there's there's certainly a, a recognition that um, and a very strong recognition that this doesn't begin to reflect the the needs in the healthcare system. I mean, in New Brunswick alone, this funding would account for like uh, 14 days of funding within our healthcare cost system. That's uh, New Brunswick uh, Premier Blair Higgs uh, talking about uh, the deal that uh, all the premiers signed on to yesterday, which is the one that Prime Minister Trudeau put on the table last week, saying it's not enough money, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, being positive, it's a step in the right direction. So it, uh, it's signed, sealed, not, not quite delivered, but is it the right way to go? Is, is it going to be effective? Is it going to give us a better healthcare system? All legitimate questions. Joining us to talk about this is a Michael Wolfson. Michael is a former assistant chief statistician with Stats Canada, also an adjunct, adjunct professor, rather, in the faculties of medicine and law at the University of Ottawa. A professor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this today. Well, I'm glad to be able to join you. Let me ask you right from, a, a, I guess, a very concerned standpoint here. How will we know if it, this is going to deliver a better care? So they keep saying, okay, we're going to share data and we're going to accumulate. the What data and, and what are they looking for here that's going to indicate that things are getting better? That's a very good question. And the documents that the federal government tabled are a bit ambiguous on this. They talk about outcomes and they talk about sharing health information. Uh, and they even talk about uh, perhaps... Uh, not just asking the provinces to commit but uh, to doing so, but also saying we might even hold back some money. But uh, that part isn't clear. The big challenge here as far as uh, anybody who's into health services research or quality analysis is just what kinds and levels of detail of data uh, are being uh, discussed here. 
And and I think, as you say, that's the gray area right now. Uh, and all the premiers, they're all singing from the same song sheet. Yeah, you're right. We need to start sharing data. We need to to have better outcomes. But, I mean, we've heard this song before, and uh, we're not really uh, making a whole lot of progress. We seem to be like, you know, the... It, the, the rodent that's on the, the treadmill here right now. We're not making, we're not going forward here. Uh, what do we need to find here differently? Does, does the fact that wait times are going to be decreased, is that a better healthcare system? The fact that, uh, you know, we're, we're performing more surgeries. I mean, they haven't really defined that, have they? No. And that's one of my concerns, but let me go back a sec. You know, maybe the provinces at least in, in some things have agreed, but I just noticed a, a tweet from the uh, premier of Alberta quoting another uh, letter from the premier of Saskatchewan saying, we're not going to have any kind of a personal ID, uh, a health ID, and we're not going to share any data with the federal government. Uh, the fact is that the provinces have been sharing uh, personal level information uh, with the Canadian Institute for Health Information for over 30 years and with the Statistics Canada for even longer. Uh, so this is nothing new. The, getting back, though, you know, an indicator about how many surgeries is okay, but the question that really needs to be addressed is, were those surgeries effective? Did they actually improve people's health? And I'm afraid that there's enough academic research and other kinds of, you know, health quality analyses that show that it isn't always the case. I can give one old example. I sure. think the professor was actually from McMaster, but I've forgotten his name. He did a, a study of uh, cataract surgery uh, amongst uh, Vancouver ophthalmologists. And in order to get at outcomes, you can't just have an indicator of how many cataract surgeries were done. You need to ask people, how well can you see now? Then you have the surgery. And then you ask them later, how well can you see after the surgery? And if memory serves, you know, about 20% of the the people in that study you know, couldn't see as well after as they could before. So you know, the wait list is important and the number of surgeries performed is important, but far more important is for us to know whether or not these uh, surgeries are being performed uh, in the, the jargon of health services research appropriately. It's not enough. Yeah, to and do see, now that sounds like that, that's important really data. I mean, I can, and I, I loved your example about the cataract surgery. I mean, I, as I've told my listeners, I mean, I've been the beneficiary of knee replacements. I've had both knees replaced over the years uh, because of past uh, sports exploits that didn't work out so well. But but I know people, Professor, that went through that, and they, you know, they're no better off. They've got a new knee, you know, know all the new parts, uh, but their mobility is just as bad as it was before. Sometimes that happens. Where Where's that data? Uh, well, that's a good question. They don't exist. In fact, Ontario used to have a joint replacement registry, but for some reason that uh, still escapes me, uh, the Ontario government decided not to fund it anymore. That would have provided the basis for understanding how often revisions uh, in these uh, joint replacements are needed and you know what the before and after health states uh, are. You know, Sweden, for example, has had one of these things for decades, uh, and it's very useful. You know, you just stop and think about it. If you want to know whether your quality is good in healthcare and whether it's improving, you absolutely need these kinds of health outcome stuff. So they're uh, measures. Uh, the and the words in the uh, federal agreed document say not just indicators but outcomes, but they don't define it anywhere. And if we were to take the words of the premiers of Saskatchewan and Alberta seriously, uh, they would block the ability to actually measure any outcomes properly. 
So what's going to happen? I mean, these guys have agreed to this right now. I'm assuming they're under the impression the money's going to start flowing tomorrow. Uh, I don't know how quickly that's going to happen. But once they start getting the money, uh, what are the chances of, of, you know, Minister Duclos, the health minister, sitting down or the prime minister even and saying, okay, now here are the rules. I got to figure, Michael, that they're going to back us. We're not going to follow that. That's sorry. We've already seen that happen to a certain extent with the child care money. Yeah, they got the deal. But now Ontario is starting to renege on some of the qualifications, et cetera, et cetera. I, I can't see that a happy you know road going forward here there's, i think there's going to be a lot of conflict here uh, there may well be but i think the key thing that's changed over compared to the 2017 and the 2003-4 accords is that i think the public following the pandemic is much more supportive they understand much better uh the importance of having good data uh and really being able to understand what's going on you know, the the health sector, you know, the, you hear the phrase, finally acts the facts. You know, it's mm-hmm. so far behind other parts of the society economy in terms of its ability to use modern uh, information technology. Uh, it's really uh, troublesome. But the good news is I think there's a groundswell of support. Another factor, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, another factor that, you know, I guess I like to... Uh, think about is, you know, if this is such an obviously good idea and it's been recommended so many times over past decades, why hasn't it happened already? And I'm afraid one has to point to vested interests. There will be losers if you do a better job of measuring health outcomes. Uh, For example, things that are being done inappropriately, uh, their funding should be uh, reduced if not cut. Well, the people who do those things uh, see their incomes fall. Well, it's a fascinating discussion, and, and like I say, it's far from over. Uh, there's a great op-ed piece that uh, that Michael Co wrote that's in the Globe and Mail. You can still check it out on their webpage. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate the time today. Uh, pleasure. Take care. That's Professor Michael Wolfson uh, from uh, University of Ottawa. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.